I'd invite you now, if you will, to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Our scripture reading is Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. We have uh, been over this passage, uh, even in our message last week, uh, but there's a particularly different angle to look at it from this, uh, this Sunday, so we're going to consider it again. Reading in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that once again, you would work with us by your Holy Spirit uh, to, give, to gather out of this passage those things that would teach us what it means to, to know Jesus more deeply and to desire to follow him more faithfully. And then, above all, to trust him in any and every circumstance of our lives. Uh, we would pray that we would also see ourselves in these disciples. And what Christ is teaching them, we pray that you would be teaching us. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Now, last uh, Sunday, as we looked at this passage, we were looking at it from the standpoint of the incredible display of, of compassion that Jesus was presenting to his disciples, in front of his disciples. Uh, the key verse there is that verse which says, I have compassion on the crowd, verse 2. The Greek there literally means that my heart has gone out toward them. And we were reflecting upon the fact that, that in this passage, what we see in Jesus, the compassion we see in Jesus Christ, is also the compassion that we must also stand, understand that God the Father has and that the Holy Spirit has. That the triune God has displayed his glory, his greatness, but also his compassion and his love in and through God the Son in his incarnate life. And so wherever we see Jesus, wherever we see Jesus relating to human beings and how he treats those human beings, we must also conclude this is how God treats people. This is God's attitude. This is God's own concern. Uh, you know, a lot of reasons for us doing that. We would never want to separate what some people do, the God of the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament. And, and, you know, there's a lot of theological rubbish in that kind of thinking. 
because it was the Father, it was the God of the Old Testament who planned the whole pattern for the Messiah. It was the God of the Old Testament who first of all confronted sin and didn't destroy Adam and Eve, but chose to give them grace, promising them that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. So we never, we should never separate God in that sense. And so what we see in Jesus, we know we see reflected in God the Father, God the Holy Spirit as well. But the particular lesson last week for us was not just to see the love of God in Christ, but to recognize that there was a great desire on the part of Jesus for his own disciples to see the crowd in the same way that he saw the crowd. That, that his disciples would feel what he felt. That even as his heart went out to these people, and they were not Jewish people, they were essentially Gentile people, that as his heart went out toward them in their hunger, even the fact that Jesus himself was hungry, their concerns were paramount. And he wanted his disciples to be like that, to imitate him in terms of compassion. So we come now to look at this passage again. And not only was there the lesson of compassion that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples, but in this whole episode, there is another crucial lesson as well. That is to say, what we see in the disciples, we should see in ourselves. We see in the disciples here, actually, a forgetful faith. And we'll get into what this means. But we see a forgetful faith because they come upon this situation and they have forgotten that Jesus has already done this before he can do this again in terms of the feeding of, of thousands of people. We also, like them, have faith that forgets. Yet the Christian life is God teaching us again and again to trust Jesus for everything. And so this, this, this episode, as we look at it this morning, is really about lessons. Uh, first of all, the lesson not learned. And then the lesson repeated. And then finally, the unspoken lesson that we find in this passage. So I want to begin with the lesson that's not learned. And as we've already said, this is the second instance in which Jesus feeds a very large number of people. What happens here is similar, but also distinctly different from what happened when Jesus earlier feed, fed the 5,000. Uh, the several important differences we can note are, are things like this. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it was a Jewish crowd. And, and, and that context was highly significant in terms of what Christ was doing. And in, the, in that particular story, Jesus commands everybody to sit down upon the grass. Well, that little notice of grass tells us when in the year this happened to be. It was in the late winter or very early spring when the hills of Palestine would be covered with green, naturally growing green grass. No different than what we have here in Kern County. Uh, you know, three months ago, we had splendidly green rolling hills surrounding Bakersfield. Not so today. Well, likewise, when Jesus tells the, this crowd to sit, they sit on the ground, indicating that, you know, it's not the same situation. Uh, it's later in the year. The, the grass has all dried up and, and from the sun burned off in that sense. 
Uh, we also see that the earlier crowd had only been with Jesus one day. But Christ was concerned because they were at the end of the day without food. They were hungry. They had spent the entire day under his teaching. The situation here is even far more severe. They've been with Jesus for three days. In the earlier story, uh, the disciples say, send them away to the nearby villages where they can buy something to eat. Here the situation is it's desolate. There, there is no nearby place to, to gain food. And Jesus even says some of them have come from a long ways. But in essence, we have the same problem that the disciples are facing that they had faced once before, only intensified. This vast crowd is now famished, so hungry, nothing really to eat, so that if Jesus even sends them away, they're going to faint upon the way. So let's notice more particularly the disciples' response to this situation. Remember, Jesus wanted the disciples to see what he saw and to feel what he felt, to have this kind of compassion. And now Jesus wants the disciples to remember what he remembers, which is to say he wants them to remember who he is, who he has shown himself to be in times of great need and in times of great distress. He is the one who has all power and all authority to address every need with more than sufficient provision. However, in this passage, they don't remember. The question that they ask Jesus in verse 4 indicates this. Uh, the The ESV translation, which we read, translates it this way. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, If you read a number of translations, if you read a number of commentaries, you would come to this conclusion. That's a vanilla translation. Now, what's a vanilla translation? Uh, Very direct, very literal, but it doesn't really carry the true ethos and the true pathos of what's being conveyed here. So William Hendrickson retranslate this in his fine commentary this way. Where in this uninhabited region, region, can anyone get bread enough to feed them? That is to say, it's not just a statement of fact. It is a statement of perplexity. It's a statement that, that basically says, how in the world can these folks be helped? Which is a strong indication that the disciples are truly perplexed. They are very much in a quandary, and it's all of the disciples, all of them this way. Now, when I was reading this, I thought, man, if I were there, if I'd been one of the disciples, I would have said, wow, this is deja vu all over again. Right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was maybe at most three months earlier that they had a large crowd. People were very hungry, and there was a concern to feed them. And you would be thinking, Jesus has got this handled. We've seen it. Right? I mean, when I'm reading this, you, you wonder, what in the world is going on here? You would think that there would have been a, a kind of a sensation. And you know what deja vu is like. You go, wow, I've, I've been here before. I've gone through this before. But this is clearly not the case. 
Not at all. And so that tells us something about the disciples' faith at this point. It is such a faith, and there's no question, they believe in Jesus, at least 11 of the 12 do. They believe in Jesus. They really, really do. But it is such a faith as to forget the Lord's previous acts of power and provision. And this seems surprising to us because uh, we've been reading from one episode to the next about all the incredible things which Jesus has been doing. Uh, That's part of the genius of Mark's presentation. He focuses far less on teaching, far more on the supernatural acts of Christ, always pointing to Jesus as the one in whom we should place our faith because Jesus can do anything and everything that needs to be done. But the disciples here are slow to remember this and slow to trust that Jesus is fully sufficient to meet every huge problem or any huge crisis that any human being would ever face. This is the lesson unlearned. This is the nature of their faith. But I want us to think about this. The slowness of their faith to, to, to get it, this lack of clear remembrance is revealing something that's very crucial about the human condition. We would look at this perhaps and say, wow, why aren't they moving along faster in their understanding of Jesus? And that's a fair question, so why? Well, the answer is this. When when we fell in Adam, when, when our first parents broke that relationship with God, it created in us the inability to trust God. Trusting God is not natural. Putting our faith in what God can do is not natural at all. It's not an ability that you and I were born with. In fact, what we find in human nature is a deep suspicion about God, the true God. A deep suspicion that this God is good, that this God would care about us, that this God would love us. And the deepest suspicion is that this God would be so good as to give us a way to be saved that truly is fully of grace. Think about all the things that you've read from the the evangelical atheists of the day, the ones who've been promoting things so strongly. Think about what we know the gospel to be. God loving you and me so much that he would do the absolutely necessary thing for our salvation, which is to bring his son into this world and to describe his son as the sacrificial lamb, the one who had to die in our place, the one who had to bear God's wrath and curse, the one who had to fulfill the demands of justice and holiness to do all of that as our substitute and our representative. What a great story that God would send his great son to do a great work for broken human beings. And how do the atheists describe it this day? 
What a terrible story the gospel is. It is about a brutal heavenly father who's going to brutalize and abuse his son in order to help people get into heaven. Is that the story? That's not the story at all. But do you see in that description this deep, deep suspicion that God could be good? This deep suspicion that God could be gracious? This deep suspicion that God could really love us so much that He would be actively involved in taking care of us? It's there. It's in all of us. We're born this way. And so when we see the disciples slow to remember the things which God has done. Even though they've seen miracle after miracle, we have to say, wow, that's the nature of the human predicament apart from the grace of God. In fact, it's not difficult to find and to trace in the lives of the disciples something very similar to Israel in the wilderness after they were liberated by ten great plagues, ten great demonstrations of God's great power, the crossing of the Red Sea, having manna every day, and yet grumbling and complaining again and again and again. This guy Moses, why did he bring us out here in the desert to die? Again and again, what we see is that trust in God is not a natural thing we possess. Which means you and I need to see ourselves as being very much like the disciples. We need to conclude that faith in God and faith in His Son are not naturally part of us. What is natural is that we are slow to believe, hard of heart, uh, lacking a trust in God, lacking the belief that He cares for us, slow to believe that Jesus is truly sufficient for all of our needs. The great uh, Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Edersheim uh, brings this point to bear as he describes this passage, and he says, and yet, even thus, talking about the disciples and their forgetfulness, and yet, even thus, how often we do, who have so believed in him, forget the divine provision which has come to us so lately. How quickly we forget all the good that God has done for us. So if we think the disciples were strange on this particular occasion not to remember that Jesus has already done this, that he's already fed the 5,000, he can handle this situation, we need to ask, what about our own forgetfulness? What about the times that we worry what about the times that we feel a bit of panic? What about the times in which we say, how in the world can this be handled and solved? Stop and remember. Your faith in God, God has to give it to you. Why do you suppose that having faced a crisis once in your life, God brings more crises into your life again? Because we're told in the New Testament the thing that is most precious to God in us is faith and trust in Him. It's God's design for our lives to grow in faith, to grow in trusting in Him 
to grow in remembering that Jesus is sufficient for all of our needs. So, how does Jesus respond to this? A lesson repeated. He repeats the lesson that he had done a few months earlier. Uh, He does again what he's done before. We see this in verse 5. He asks what the disciples have, and the disciples say that they've got seven loaves. But those seven loaves are an impossibly small amount for the greatness of the crowd. So, Jesus gives thanks. He begins to multiply the bread, so the whole crowd is served. Then in verse 7, the disciples bring him a few small fish. Whenever I think about small fish, I think of either sardines or anchovies, and I hope it was the one rather than the other. But you know, if, if you ever do eat sardines, it is terribly wrong to eat them at night in bed next to your wife. You need to know that that's almost an unforgivable sin. John. So the disciples bring a few small fish, and once again Jesus gives thanks, and he directs the disciples to distribute these fish as well. Then we read in verse 8 that they all eat, they're all satisfied. The disciples collect seven baskets full. Now this is interesting because the word for baskets here is a different word than we find back in the story about the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000, the term basket there would be more along the lines of a picnic basket kind of thing, something of that size. These were called hampers, which would have been large baskets. And so seven large baskets full of remaining fish and remaining bread. Every detail that we see in the story was meant to teach in terms of what Jesus was doing. First, the fact that they had a few loaves of bread to teach them that what they themselves had in themselves was, in fact, impossibly small with respect to the crisis and problem in front of them. The disciples, now listen very carefully and think about all the things you hear in the world today. You see it every time sports coaches, you see it, people seeking success, you see a message opposite of what I'm going to say to you. The disciples are being taught by Jesus, do not have faith in yourself. And yet, again and again and again, people are told, you just got to believe in yourself. You just got to believe in yourself. Your problem is is that you hold yourself back because you don't believe in yourself. We could say a lot about that. Perhaps if you want to read something that is the best analysis of that idea of believing in yourself, uh, you will find it in one of the early chapters of G.K. Chesterton's book called Orthodoxy. He points out in a kind of logic that is unassailable that the man who believes most in himself is the man who's in the insane asylum. And a number of years ago, I talked to a psychologist who works with prisoners, and he says, in our culture, the people who have the greatest self-esteem by ever measurement are hardened criminals. They believe more in themselves than they believe in the law, 
parole officers, right and wrong. The people who believe the most in themselves are the people who are bound to do the greatest evil in this world. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Chairman Mao, Idi Amin. This lesson that Jesus is teaching here isn't just a small lesson for your Christian life. Don't trust yourself, don't believe in yourself. It is one of the biggest issues in the world today. The devil wants everyone to believe in himself. Because the more you believe in yourself, the less you will think you need God. Because you make yourself to be God. So they were not to have faith in themselves. They were not to believe in themselves. They were not to trust in their own resources. They were not to believe that they were able to do this thing of feeding the 4,000. In every way, they needed to see that they were unable based upon the resources which they possessed to do the very thing that needed to be done at this time in order that they might know the greatness of Jesus Christ. The second thing in this passage that's critical is that Jesus gives thanks before He distributes the bread, gives thanks before He distributes the fish, in order to display to the disciples and everyone else the help you need is a help that comes from heaven. The help that you need to keep the, to keep the crowd from just thinking it was Jesus, this man, Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood that what he was doing came from the one who has all infinite power to take care of us in our greatest need. It's the principle that Jesus taught earlier in, in his ministry. We read this in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in that prayer that we were taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And the only reason we would pray, give us this day our daily bread, the only reason Jesus would teach us that is because God is able and God is willing and you can't do it yourself. You do not provide your daily bread. If you think you do, you are living a great illusion. The scriptures say, what do you have that you have not received? The greatest delusion that the God of this world has foisted upon the minds of unbelievers is the belief that they have their life, they have their breath, they have their abilities in and of themselves. And yet it is the case that if God were to stop his sovereign upholding of the universe by the word of his power, everything would in fact disappear into nothingness just like that. Everything depends upon the sovereign power of God. And the disciples needed to know that all of this power came from heaven, from God above. For us, it tells us, how do you live as a Christian? You, you must live in daily dependence upon Christ, consciously. Because if you're not consciously depending upon Christ, you are unwittingly depending upon yourself. Uh, 
the counsel of Solomon in Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And thirdly, there's seven hamperfuls of resources left over to teach us, Jesus, to teach us that God is able to do immeasurably beyond all that we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. A power that is at work within us that does not come from ourselves, that does not come from believing in ourselves, does not come from a positive mental attitude, it does not come from, from some kind of will to believe in the face of all difficulties. No. It's not from ourselves. It's God's work within us according to his power at work within us for his own glory. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples the very night before he was betrayed as he's talking about the vine and the gardener, the vine dresser and the branches? He was saying that he himself was the vine, that his disciples were branches. And he said that, you know, branches that don't remain in the vine prove to be entirely fruitless. That is to say, non-productive. They, they're broken off and, and, and are fit to be burned. And so he says, in metaphorical language, but what we understand, he says, abide in me and my word abide in you. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And, and we as Christians, we, we must never get far away from that. How we live, we must never move far away. We've got to keep that front and center. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. I usually add some words to Christ there carefully. I can do nothing but sin, <laughs> right? And even then, you know, if God didn't uphold the universe, there wouldn't be a universe for me to sin in. But apart from anchoring myself in Christ, apart from focusing upon Jesus, apart from depending upon Him, I can do no good. And, and that's part of what the lesson is that Jesus is teaching His disciples. Again and again, in the Christian life, the Lord will place trials and hardships beyond our ability to handle so that we will know that apart from Him, we can't do this thing. And again and again, He will teach us this lesson. It will be a lesson repeated again and again and again that we have to walk by faith and not by sight, and that it's not in our own strength, but in his strength. So that someday we'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, God's grace is sufficient for me, for his power is perfected in me and my weakness. And therefore, Paul goes on to say, therefore I will glory all the more in my hardships, in my afflictions, in my weaknesses, because when I am weak, then he is strong. When we are dependent, we are most useful to the Lord. When we are, in fact, unable to do whatever it is, that's when our faith will actually begin to grow as we trust 
in Christ. Now, what's the final lesson here? What's the unspoken lesson? It's really found in verse 10. Because in verse 10, we read that Jesus' disciples get into the boat, they leave, they go back across to the Jewish territory. But what we note missing in verse 10 is anything in Jesus chiding his disciples because of their lack of faith. Now, later in the chapter, Jesus is going to give some lessons about their faith and talk about this. But right then, in that moment, the weakness of their faith has been exposed. The former lessons they were supposed to know that they have forgotten, that's been exposed. Jesus has to repeat what they're supposed to know. But Mark records nothing in the way of Jesus saying anything that might chide them or anything that might, in some sense, dress them down or put them in their place. He is not upset with his disciples because they had to have this lesson repeated. The lesson here, the unspoken lesson, is the graciousness of God toward we who have forgetful faith. It reminds me of a basic scriptural truth that King David knew and King David understood It's articulated in Psalm 103. In verse 2 of Psalm 103, David says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. (laughs) Right? So David there is preaching to himself. And he's saying, Soul, don't forget what God has done for you. Because it's to our benefit not to forget what God has done for us. It's vital to our faith to always remember the benefits of God, the benefits of the gospel of His Son, the benefits of grace, to remember again and again that God has done everything for us in Christ. Yet, even as we often forget, David goes on to say and remind us in verse 13 and 14, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So the lesson here is that Christ is truly compassionate, not only toward this vast crowd and their great need, compassionate toward his disciples and their forgetful faith. To to let them know again and again, that the struggle to believe, the struggle to trust, the struggle is actually the great struggle in light of what our great fall and Adam brought us to. Redemption is, in fact, the amazing thing of God taking us step by step through trial and difficulties and afflictions, and hardships. To see in the midst of all of these things what Paul himself discovered, that God's grace in Christ is sufficient for our need. And so the story that God is working in each of us is a story of faith. Read Pilgrim's Progress again. The pilgrim is not a giant of faith when he begins his pilgrimage. The wonders of a story is all the ways in which he stumbles and falls through the way. And he does not pick himself up by his own bootstraps. But again and again, God sends what pilgrim needs. In lessons learned 
and grace provided so that he reaches the celestial city. So we too need to remember this. As the Apostle Peter declared in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that the divine power of Christ has been given to us so that in that God has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. See ourselves in the disciples. See Christ as our sufficiency. Know that God is compassionate toward us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this, this, this passage. Thank you that we can understand that we are so much like the disciples. But thank us to, that we can also see your grace toward us in your Son, Jesus, that where we have nothing, Jesus has all. So build up our faith. But when we've forgotten, teach us these lessons again. In the name of your wonderful Son, amen.